You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson. It is Matt Wilson coming to you, asking you the question, do you want to get out of your comfort zone? Are you looking to improve your health? Are you looking to look inward in your life, explore the world around you, and get a little bit closer to nature? If so, I invite you to come hang out with myself and my girlfriend, Luz Garcia, 1,500-hour registered certified yoga teacher in the Sacred Valley of Peru. We are leading a trip together July 22nd through 28th to Machu Picchu at an amazing yoga retreat center in the Sacred Valley. We are going to be combining two things that have made tremendous impact on my development as a human, yoga and adventure. So if you'd like to come, this trip is open to anybody who would like. You don't have to just be under 30. Check out under30experiences.com. Look for yoga in Machu Picchu and uh, come out. We are trying to create a community of people who want more out of life, who want to have the priorities set straight, who want to look inward, develop a strong set of values and put their health and wellness first, as well as just satisfy that need for adventure to see something new in the world. Check it out, under30experiences.com. I would love to meet you. Let me know if you have any questions. Matt at under30experiences.com. Would love to connect. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Live Different Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Wilson, and today we are here with a very special guest, Joe K., the co-founder of Billabong USA and Hurley Surf Brand, sold to Nike in 2000. Two, he's a guest lecturer at USC, Cal, Stanford, the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising. He has an amazing story of doing what he loves uh, for a living, following his dreams, and also getting to see some really cool places around the world. Uh, isn't that right, Joe? Yeah, I'm really um, a blessed man in terms of my vocation being my avocation. And um, I'm thankful. I'm grateful. Very. That's that's really cool, Joe. We were having, of course, an awesome uh, time chatting just for five minutes before this. We started it. It started getting so good that I said, "Okay, wait. We need to start recording this so this uh, so other people can can listen in and and of course be inspired by your story and and also learn." You are already dropping little gems of, of wisdom um, all over the place. So, yeah, I just wanted to, to really... I don't think it was gems of wisdom. I think it was green-eyed envy in terms of where you're calling from. And like going, gee, you're in Costa Rica, and I'm not. <laughs> you know, that that is true. However, you did immediately talk about... Uh, what it was like when you were here years and years ago, but then you quickly said, 
We, but let's not get into talking about the good old days. And uh, I find it, you know, I I find it honestly kind of annoying when the old gringos around here want to talk about how overrun it is with tourists and all that. And you said, well, there's no other choice but to stay in the present. And and then you even elaborated on that further. And so I would say that was a gem of gem of wisdom. <laughs> we don't really have much of a choice. Well, that's not true. We do have a choice. We have a choice to live in the present or live in the past. But I think the present is a present, and we need to take it like that. No, for for sure. Well, um, certainly I, I'd like to try and see if we can learn a little bit from, uh, from the past in this instance. Do you want to take us through your story a little bit? I mean, that, that's certainly opening up the books to say, hey, uh, tell me your life story. But but really, maybe we could start with what inspired you in the early days when you were surfing in California, I believe somewhere between uh, right around 1983, I think, is when you started your um, your first surf brand or acquired the licensing for Billabong. But could you take me back to, well, what we'll call the, the good old days? <laughs> um, well, actually, it started way beyond that when um, in high school, I went to Westchester High and here in Los Angeles by LAX, and uh, we were only about a mile in back of the beach, and we had a lot of surfers there, and we were building boards. One of the guys building boards was Pat Rosson, who is now a famous uh, surfboard shaper living on North Shore, and Pat and I built boards out of our garage at 60th and Crenshaw and uh, we had skateboards uh, belly boards um, yeah the, uh, the the involvement with surfing goes way way back my parents were both surfers my dad body surfed he uh, stood up uh, on a longboard uh, for many years my mom uh, back in the 40s was in Waikiki doing tandeming with the Outrigger Canoe Club, uh, wow. Redwood Board. So, yeah, you know, the surfing, you know, story, the uh, the DNA runs really deep, you know, in our family, and it was something that um, you know, I, I was really lucky to participate in all the way through, uh, from my mom making canvas pillowcases that we would get wet in the ocean and then twirl around our heads like wind socks and time off and those were pre uh tom mori uh boogie boards <laughs> oh my god <laughs> and i was fortunate that my parents were both teachers and so uh, we have the summers off so we would save our nickel and dimes literally mom would make peanut butter sandwiches and drop us off at the beach at el porto or marine street in manhattan beach um down at Oil Pier or Ship Pipe in El Segundo. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a really fun time. Um, the, the whole surf industry at that time was uh, not an industry. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't. I mean, you had Dewey Weber, you had Greg Knoll, you know, going off making, you know, hundreds, thousands of surfboards. You had pop-out boards, you know, Dextra. But, you know, we were, we were living the life. Sounds like it. Sounds like it. So you were you were making boards, and then where did you go from from there? Um. Well, um, <laughs> I went to UC Irvine, and I thought that I died and went to heaven because uh, I could surf before classes. This was in 1972, uh, living at 40th Street 
uh, surfing Brook Street and Rock Pile down a lagoon in Salt Creek. And, you know, again, having parents that were surfers, um, we would head down to Dana Point in the 60s. You know, that was before Dana Point Harbor was built. And I knew about Salt Creek. You know, in the whole, if it was South Wind, you'd go to Salt Creek because South Wind is offshore at Salt Creek. So I landed at UCI, graduated with my undergraduate degree, and then, gee, what am I going to do for a living? And both my parents being teachers and seeing the lifestyle that, you know, they enjoyed as well as, you know, helping and laying treasures up in heaven with students, I said, gee, I'm going to become a teacher. So I became a teacher, but... Um, Teachers don't make a whole lot of money, and I was down in Lake Forest, which was right there at the El Toro Y uh, in back of Laguna Beach, and so I had to work several jobs outside the classroom to put food on the table. I was recently married, and so uh, I was waiting tables. Um, I was uh, that time exporting surfboards to Japan because my wife's brother was living in Tokyo, and Surfing was becoming popular in Japan. This was in the late 70s, and because I had all these relationships with uh, surfboard shapers, then I was exporting Russell surfboards and Rick Jane surfboards down in San Clemente and Midget Smith and uh, Bob Hurley's boards as well. Bob was shaping for Lightning Bolt and for Wind and Sea in Huntington, and wave tools in Costa Mesa, and he had his own label, International Pro Designs. So then Bob asked me if I could manage his surf shop in Costa Mesa, and that had to be about 1981. So let's say I was waiting tables, I was exporting surfboards to Japan, I was teaching, and then I was managing Bob Hurley's um, surf shop. So it Bob, sounds like you had your hands full at that point. <laughs> I was really having my hands full, but, you know, the common thread still was I had no idea how I was able to, um, you know, uh, keep my focus and be able to still be in the water all the time and see my wife. Um, <laughs> we've been married now 40 years, so she put up with a lot. And, uh, yeah, it was it was a fun time. Bob wanted to sell Quicksilver at Hurley Surfboards, but Quicksilver was at that time um, in bed with Balboa Surf and Sport, which was only about a mile away from Hurley Surfboards in Costa Mesa, and that was my first experience of the political side of distribution and where uh, we were shut down. Bob asked me to contact Billabong in Australia. I never heard of Billabong, frankly, but Bob did because Bob shaped boards for traveling pros, and so I sent snail mail letters, uh, which were ignored. We had a team rider, Chip uh, Roland, who was heading over to Australia to compete, and so I gave him copies of all my letters, and lo and behold, he was staying with the team manager, Vince Lauder of Billabong. And long and the short of it is, I get a phone call from Chipper saying, gee, they're not looking for some you know, tiny little surf shop. They want somebody to do the whole United States. So that's how we fell into getting the license for Billabong USA. Wow. Okay. So how does someone who is teaching school and waiting tables and uh, <laughs> running a surf shop then decide, oh yeah, sure, I can do uh, nationwide distribution for a, for a surf brand like Billabong. How, how, does, how did you decide that 
yeah, I could do that. Um, well, actually, you know, when you're young and stupid, you know, you can like, um, you can take credit for it all, but there's a lot of wisdom to that saying it's better to be lucky than smart. And we were just in the right place at the right time. I mean, surfing was, uh, really starting to go off in the late seventies, early, um, eighties, the baby booners, uh, were having children and they were, you know, starting to get back into surfing as well. All things Australian were cool. You had Crocodile Dundee, um, right. you had Men at Work, Midnight Oil, um, In Excess. <laughs> there, were, there was a lot going on from the music scene. And then you had Mark Acalupo, this young 16, 17-year-old surfer that Gordon Merchant in Australia, the owner-founder of Billabong, he and his wife Rena picked up Aki. And there was this great rivalry going on between Mark Acalupo and Tom Curran with the OP Pro and Yanaki getting interviewed in Surfer Magazine uh, saying, we're going to stop those, you know, American Seppo wankers. And um, so it, just being in the right place at the right time. So I would say when you ask the question, how did we go at it? Um, it was incredibly organic. We were, we worked insanely hard. Yes, no question. Many, many, many sleepless nights. We still were all keeping our day jobs, Bob shaping surfboards, um, me still teaching and uh, waiting tables. We had another partner, Mike Oxner, who was our CFO operations guy, but in the beginning he just volunteered his time, uh, told him, um, he had a revelation from Jesus that he was to volunteer. I'm not making this up. <laughs> okay. Cost accountant for Hughes Aircraft. And so he volunteered his time with us. So there was, um, a, a lot of being in the right place at the right time. We went to our first trade show and it was the action sports retailer show in Long Beach. And uh, we had no idea how many orders we would write. We raised $45,000 uh, uh, from friends, families, and fools, the three Fs. And when we went to our first trade show, uh, we wrote over a million dollars of sales. And we only had $45,000. And, uh, you know, we, again, Australia, they'd been around Billabong since 1973, so they were really laying the foundation in terms of marketing and promotion. And the surf shop owners, like Bob Hurley, knew about Billabong USA, so when they came to the trade show and walked by our booth, it was more like, gee, it's about time you guys got here stateside. You know, here's an order for five or $10,000, and we'd say, gee, don't you want to see the line? What do you want? And they go, oh, no, just send assorted board shorts, assorted T-shirts. So Gordon had a heart attack when he found out how much we had written, but uh, Gordon pushed all his chips in if this was a poker game and said, um, I'll finance your inventory. He had a factory in Burley Heads on the Gold Coast and Surfer's Paradise in Australia. So, you know, he went ahead and um, manufactured our product. So um, if it wasn't for Gordon... Uh, taking the risk and financing, manufacturing our inventory that first season, and then we're off and running. And so uh, a lot of times if I'm speaking at Stanford or Berkeley 
you know, they'll want to know, gee, what's the formula? A plus B plus C equals D success. Yay. But, um, you know, I have to give credit where credit is due here. <laughs> it's a lot better to be lucky than smart. Timing is everything. And by the grace of God, you know, we pulled it all off. We also were really fortunate that we had the right people sitting at the table, that there was alignment, meaning that um, in typically when you start a business, you're really strong in one area, whether it's design or whether it's, you know, the creative side and then you're lacking on the operations side or you don't know how to get at the sales piece. And uh, we had everybody sitting at the table. Bob Hurley was great and is great at sales and promotion and marketing. Mike Oxner, as I mentioned earlier, he was great with the uh, finance operations piece, the nuts and bolts side of the business. And then my responsibility was the design and the production piece to execute um, the vision. So we had everybody sitting at the table. We were, we were really fortunate, but there really is no formula here, Matt. Um, we were just in the right place at the right time. All things Australian. Okay, so but you had to take what Billabong was doing and their line, and I assume that uh, the nuts and bolts of it are that they sent you, okay, hey, here's what this is going to look like. Uh, here's what the line for the season is. You guys took it to uh, the trade show. You received the orders, but then you guys actually had to produce this in the United States. Did I hear that right? Well, when Gordon gave us the license, he had a factory going full tilt in back of Burley Heads, which was maybe about a mile in back of the coast. And so we had 200 sewing operators going. And when we uh, put our order in, uh, he made that factory go like, you know, double shifts. And uh, so he pulled it off in the first probably two years all of our uh, cut-and-sew production came from Australia, our T-shirts and our fleece. Um, because I was printing T-shirts for Hurley Surfboards, we were printing our T-shirts and fleece with a Hawaiian guy. Uh, he had a T-shirt factory called Morning Sun in Costa Mesa. And uh, Morning Sun stayed with us all the way up until December of 2016. So from 1980, Morning Sun printed T-shirts for Hurley Surfboards, and then they morphed into printing for Billabong. And then when we pulled the plug on Billabong in 1999, uh, Morning Sun did our T-shirts all the way through till uh, Christmas of this year. So um, we were just really fortunate. We had a lot of loyalty and people that had our backs. Our success was built upon a great posse, a great crew, and I don't mean that in a cliche sense at all. Um, we had guys that uh, literally would take bullets for us, and, and I don't mean that lightly. I mean, I had a truck driver, you know, Lou Baby, that in Los Angeles, he would go around and pick up, you know, all of our, you know, production coming out of the factories and during the Rodney King riots. And it was all cordoned off, and Lou went in with his uh, trusty, you know, handgun and it picked up our production. But it was a slow evolution back to your question of transitioning. After a while, we had so many orders that Australia couldn't keep up with us. And then, as well, there started to be some creative um, differences in directions from a design standpoint that we wanted to take with the USA line. And so then we hired a um, a USA designer, 
Uh, he came out of Catch It. Uh, Don Murakami, a.k.a. Jack Flynn. So we started to design here. And then I started to open up uh, sewing contractors in Los Angeles and Orange County. And then probably four years into it, all of our production was coming out of the United States. So we actually, all the way up until 2002, 85% of our production was made in the USA. Okay, so... Okay. You went from 1983, uh, being a fresh brand in the United States with no sales, to when, when you walked into that first trade show, $45,000 that you raised, to 1998, to at $70,000,000, and then you pulled the plug. And that's where I never could quite figure out, as many times as I've read over the story, I could never quite figure out... Uh, how you would just walk away from how you would just walk away from that, and then you transition to the Hurley brand. But could you walk me through that? I just can't imagine just pulling the plug on a, a seventy million dollar business in the United States. Could you explain that for me? Sure. Um, I alluded to the fact that uh, we were transitioning away uh, from uh, Australia-inspired designs. Initially, all things Australia were cool. But then, like all things that are trend-driven, um, you know, streetwear started to come in. Gotcha came in and was embracing, you know, hip-hop culture. Stussy came in. So our design started to become more and more different than what Australia was releasing. And bear in mind that we were still a licensee paying a royalty fee to Australia. And then we were getting a lot of requests from the other licensees worldwide, such as Billabong Japan and Billabong Australia, Billabong um, South Africa, Billabong Europe. And Billabong Australia was the parent. The rest of us are child. But they wanted to have our collection, our line. You know, I was making samples for them. And, you know, in, in the Southern Hemisphere, they have a different calendar. And so I was getting urgent requests to, you know, make up samples. And, you know, uh, when we would have line releases, um, it was starting to get really hairy. And we're going, well, wait a second. You know, we're the child here and we're still paying, you know, at, the, at that point now millions of dollars to Australia in license fees. Which was totally fine because in recognition, what I said earlier, in terms of we wouldn't have even been even remotely where we were if it wasn't for Rena and Gordon putting in the 10-year hard slog in the beginning from 79 to 83 so that when we came in, I mean, it was an uh, it, it was wide open for us. They had really plowed the field, and, and so we were welcomed you know, into the market immediately and they have the ability to execute on the vision. So I'm not like dismissing at all what Gordon and Rena did, but we started to move in different directions creatively. The women's line started to get um, attention and traction and Billabong in Australia wanted us to do a Billabong women's collection and this was probably 1996-97 and we're going gee well the Australian designs clearly aren't going to work for the USA market they're working well in Australia but we're gonna have to change fit we're gonna have to change the graphics and uh, the fabrication 
Um, and so that's going to require a fair amount of investment on our side. Please work with us. And um, you know, we're going to have to uh, maybe give you less in terms of royalty. I guess you know, when it comes down to it, you, know, it, 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 you follow the money. And Australia uh, wasn't willing to, to work with us on that part. And they were adamant that we do the Billabong Girls collection. So Bob Hurley was flying back and forth to Australia trying to hammer out an agreement. And I would get a phone call from Bob. You know, when he would be coming back from Angari and Yamba, having a meeting with Gordon and saying, yippee, you know, we don't have to do the women's collection. Or, yes, we were going to do the women's collection, but we worked out an agreement to help us with the designs. And then he would give me a call back. Oh, well, you know, they changed their mind. So ultimately, that was one of the things that was uh, a bone of contention. And we found out that Billabong then went ahead and then opened up a um, office in uh, San Francisco. And we were going, well, wait a second, aren't we the licensee? And, well, you guys don't want to do the women's. So, you know, the, that was not a good thing that was going down. And then as well, there were some creative differences because we started to work with skaters a lot, such as Lincoln Ueda and Bob Bernquist. And at license meetings, we were copying a fair bit of grief saying, gee, you know, we're a surf company and, you know, you should be putting on some giant 5A contest at Huntington Beach as opposed to working with skaters. And we're going, well, surfers skate, you know, and, you know, we all skated when we were young and we still skate. We have a skate ramp in our warehouse, you know, what do you mean? Um, and then music-wise, that was when MTV started to really come online, and so we were working with bands such as Blink-182 and Newfound Glory, and we were copying heat with that. So there were just creative differences. So when our license uh, came up for renewal, because it was every five years, we just couldn't come to an agreement. And so we just said, you know, people say, God, you guys must have made a ton whack of money, you know, selling the license back to Australia. We didn't sell the license back to Australia. We gave it back and said, gee, you know, we're going to start a new company, Hurley, because just creatively, you know, we've got some differences here. And so um, we shook hands and parted ways. And again, by the grace of God, um, it didn't end up in any litigation, no lawsuits. Um, and, uh, you know, at that time we had thought, gee, you know, we made Billabong what it is and, you know, uh, they're going to eat it big time because Bob Hurley and I and the crew were walking away thinking that they were going to go into the, uh, you know, into oblivion, into the black hole. Um, and we were going to crush it with Hurley, but it turned out there was room in the market for both uh, companies and indeed uh, Billabong crushed it more than ever when they picked up Paul Nade to replace us and uh, they went float or public in Australia with an IPO and they were often running to the races as well and so it was kind of a comeuppance for us as well thinking that you know Billabong's success could be laid directly at our feet and while we all worked really hard and yes we all it, it was a great team but uh gordon and rena in australia um we wouldn't be where we are if it wasn't for them either but that's that maybe a a, a long answer to a short question but i gave you pretty much um, that's that's the facts. That's what went down, and why we walked away from the uh, the Billabong USA licensee. 
No, I, I no. appreciate it. And then uh, had Bob Hurley just been designing his own stuff on the side or how were you able just to run with Hurley so quickly? Because I, as I understand, the first year you guys went to that trade show and got $25 million in orders. Is that correct? Yeah, shocking to us. Um that we came out of the gate so strong because, you know, we were, well, Bob, he's interviewed, will say, he, you know, he wasn't scared and he wasn't concerned. Um, I was, definitely, and so was Mike Oxner. And we were thinking, we have 150 employees, how are we going to keep all these people on board? So we had put together, you know, three different plans, you know, worst case, probably what might happen, and best case. And worst case was we were going to go from $70 million to $5 million, and, you know, maybe 10 million was middle ground and 15 million was best case. And yeah, we wrote a ton of orders at our first trade show. A lot of that had to do with the, again, alluding to the loyalty that we had with our crew for over many, many, many years having our backs. And I think that we had their backs as well. And so when we pulled the plug on Billabong in Australia and gave back the license. Um, every one of our employees stuck with us, with the exception of our sales reps, and they were independent sales reps and they were commission based. And so, of course, they were terrified, thinking, "Gee, am I? You know, how can I go from you know seventy million dollars in orders to five million or ten million or fifteen? I've got Amley to feed." And Billabong came in and guaranteed that you know, they would make the same amount of money as they made with us, and we just couldn't. So other than the sales people, all of our design people, Leanne Murray and her crew, my production people, they all stayed, uh, our screen printers, our sewing contractors, um, you know, all of our um, leases were under you know, Billy International, which was the holding company for the Billabong USA license. And so I can remember even having conversations with Gordon. Gordon would be saying, well, where are you guys going to move to? And we said, well, what do you mean where we're going to move to? Um, these, we, we paid the lease on these buildings for years and years and years. It's not under Billabong. You know, it's under, you know, um, the holding company, Billy International. Um, well, you know, what computer systems are you going to use? Well, what, so, you know, it, it, on one hand, a lot of people think it was punk rock to do what we did in terms of just pulling the plug and saying, okay, we're going to start this new company. But it really wasn't that punk rock of a move. I mean, it was, but it wasn't. All of our people stayed with us. And when we went to the trade shows, our first trade show, people knew Bob Hurley. And indeed, that's why we named it Hurley, because Bob was the face of the brand. So it was a seamless transition. So I'm not trying to make light of it, but again, by the grace of God, everything flowed and uh, we came out of the gates like a house of fire. Wow, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, that sounds like uh, he certainly had some some confidence, but yeah, that's a, a bold move. Either, either way, that's that's really interesting to to hear about. Um, and then I guess we might as well kind of keep going through through the story. Uh, at, at one point, I had heard that there was the idea to take Hurley public, but you guys said no. Is that true? Um, 
You know, there never really was discussion among us partners to take it public because we had seen on the sidelines what went down with uh, Quicksilver when they went public and Bob McKnight and, you know, the struggles that they were going through in terms of being forced into product channels, um, you know, retailers, um, into forecasts that were extremely aggressive, into product that uh, might not be considered all that core, but nevertheless commercial, but we could compromise your um, your core audience. Um, and then we saw what happened with Volcom when they went public, and you know certainly when they got the big fat checks, you know everyone was happy, happy, happy. But I can remember uh, Richard Wolcott, Wooly, when he was on his first uh, conference call with the analyst after Volcom went public, and the uh, analysts on Wall Street were asking him, well, when are you going to open up Pacific Sunwear? And uh, Wooly said, uh, well, we're never going to open up Pacific Sunwear because Pacific Sunwear is a lame account. And while they can give us huge numbers, that's not where the Volcom customer shops and we're never going to sell to Pacific Sunwear. And the next day, the stock went in the toilet. I think I, I don't think it lost 25%, but it was like huge. I mean, the oh, analysts said, you know. And so we, we were on the sidelines watching all of this go down and we were saying, you know, how can you have integrity and, you know, uh, preserve the vision that we have for Hurley, but not go the IPO route. And a lot of that had to do with Mike Oxner as well, giving great advice. And, um, you know, you could be uh, you know, extremely wealthy, you know, straight after the IPO, but then, you know, it, it, you're living in hell. Um, so, yeah, IPO was never really in the cards for us, Matt. Okay, well, no, that's, it, it sounds like uh, sticking to the vision there um, was very important to you guys. And then you decided Phil Knight and Nike came along and you st- Thought that that was uh, the route that you wanted to go. Uh, wanted to go as far as growing uh, what you thought Hurley could become through their distribution channels and with their team. Um, could could you walk me through the the acquisition a little bit as we kind of come full circle on on the story and we then we can transition more into travel and whatever else we want to talk about. Of course. Um. We recognized that we needed some deep pockets to realize the vision. And so there were a number of people that our accounting firm, Moss Adams, and we had been with Moss Adams probably since 1985 or 86. Because again, I keep mentioning Mike Oxner's name, but like he's really quite the unsung hero that never really gets a whole lot of press in the story. Uh, Mike, uh, needed to uh, work with a well-established, well-regarded accounting firm in the rag trade, Apparel Universe, Moss Adams, you know, was one of the key players and our books needed to be audited to make sure that we could get our credit line renewed from the bank that we were working with. And so Moss Adams, our accounting firm, had been with us since the early, early, early days. And, you know, they're really on the forefront as well with M&A strategies. So when we were thinking about 
um, looking at a merger and or an acquisition, uh, Moss Adams was a natural uh, player for us to talk to. And so they introduced us to a number of candidates of which Nike was one of them. And so Bob Hurley, myself, and our promotion and marketing uh, guy, Paul Gomez, we flew up to Beaverton to meet with Nike, a meeting that Moss Adams orchestrated on September 10th, 2001. And I can remember, you know, driving into the campus and being blown away. And of course, you know, we all were well aware of Nike's act and uh, their authenticity. And so we had lunch with uh, Phil Knight and uh, with Mark Parker and Scott Olivet. And um, we thought, you know, getting back on the plane that night, my wife picked me up at John Wayne Airport, had the meeting. Uh, Nike is insane. Totally like the, they get where we're trying to take the company. They get the authenticity. They get, you know, the opportunity of Hurley. And then we woke up the following morning, and of course we all know what that was, 9-11, and we watched the Twin Towers come down, and the uh, uh, the excitement of our meeting the day before was just like, are, are you kidding? I mean, yeah. we just watched the World Trade Center fall. I mean, who really cares about the Nike, you know, Hurley acquisition? You know, gee, the whole world's falling apart. And the very next day, on September 12, 2001, we get a phone call from Scott Olivet up at Nike going, so come on, let's do this deal. Let's make it happen. And Bob and I are looking at each other and Mike Oxner and Paul Gomez, and we're saying, don't they realize what happened yesterday? Right. I mean, and and, and it, it, that was my first real introduction to gee, this is the way the big boys play, and they have these long-term perspectives and horizons. And you know, we're just kind of a spit in the ocean in the surf industry that really don't have a whole lot of perspective. And so we inked the deal, and um, and then Nike. Uh, you know, one of the main reasons why we uh, wanted to have a relationship with Nike was what we uh, felt was the international opportunity uh, with Hurley because being a licensee of Billabong, we saw the opportunity of the international. But when we announced uh, Hurley, you know, at the trade shows, it was my responsibility to garner all the international business cards and build the relationships with people that were interested in working with us in Europe or in Australia or in uh, Japan or China and tell them, no, 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 we're not going to expand international till we get this right. And when Nike came on board, Nike said, gee, you know, we don't want licensees. Um, you know, it's really hard to control uh, licensees acts because they're basically renting the home and they're not owning the home. We want to set up subsidiaries. So that was a real big, uh, what I felt advantage that Nike enjoyed because they wanted to set up the international subsidiaries. So then I became on point to help set up Billabong in, sorry, to set up Hurley in Japan and uh, you know dealt with the real estate and the um, 
hiring of people and the marketing and promotion and the same thing in Europe. And we decided to locate our office in Barcelona and in Sydney in Manly. And then in Tokyo, it was uh, Uda Harajuku. You would think, gee, we would want to be on the beach. But we recognized that the opportunity for Hurley was much bigger than just, if you will, just in quotes, uh, you know, the surf opportunity that, you know, we really felt there was a big opportunity in uh, youth lifestyle. Wow. And, and Joe, did you know that everybody here in Costa Rica wears Hurley almost, I don't want to say exclusively, but it is so big here. It is incredible not to see a Costa Rican on the beach. It's rare if you don't see him in a Hurley hat and you have that, you actually, a lot of times you wonder, okay, where did he get this $40 hat? Because, you know, minimum wage here is less than $3 an hour, but they save up for those hats. I mean, they, they love it. They, they love it. Did you, did you know that? Uh, I, when I travel, I, I, I'm pretty dumbfounded when I see all the Hurley hats. And it's it, it, it's it's really not to be trite or cliche, but it really is sort of humbling. And you just kind of go, "Wow, <laughs> what hath God wrought?" You know, it's it's it, it, it's uh, it's a, a lot of it is relationship driven too. Because even in the early Hurley days, when we were going down to Pavones to bring this conversation full circle, there was a guy down there, Marcelo Herrera. And Marcelo was, you know, a hardcore young guy surfer that, you know, I started a relationship with um, in terms of, you know, emailing. And when he would come up here stateside, you know, we would get together and, you know, I'd flow him lots of Hurley product. And, um, you know, that story was repeated, you know, whether it was on Shikoku, you know, in Japan with somebody that was a really hardcore surfer that just became a friend or whether it was in uh, Europe or in Australia, a lot of what the success of Hurley that it has enjoyed is relationship-driven. Um, always been a huge, huge fan of real and authentic relationships. That's pretty cool. So, so Joe, has your has your tra- have your travels mainly been business-focused? surf focused or i'm gonna take a wild guess and say that they had a lot to do with both if you're setting up locations in surf spots uh yeah tell me a little bit more about your your travels i know you've been down here to costa rica and we were rattling off different surf spots down here but uh yeah tell tell me some more well you know i guess if i really want to take it back all the way through to when i was growing up with my parents you know, both being teachers, there was a lot of emphasis on travel all the way through. And so um, even when I was growing up, uh, we would save our nickel and dimes, like I said, and then rent a a, a cockroach infested (laughs) apartment in the jungle back of Waikiki by the Alawai Canal. And then I would be uh, cutting lawns and saving up my nickels and dimes so that when I got over to Hawaii, I could, you know, either buy a board or rent the boards from the from the beach concessions way back when. Um, surfing has always been a part of our travels. Even, you know, we would take trips down to Newport and rent a place um, in back of 10th Street uh, in Balboa 
and you know we'd be body surfing or skimboarding back then so when i became a teacher i mean clearly i didn't have any money at all and i'd look wistfully up at the planes flying out of lax going gee i wish i was on a plane being able to take a surf trip but you don't need a plane to take a surf trip i mean when i was at uc irvine we would take many a surf trip down to uh, baja and all the surf spots spread between Ensenada and Tijuana from K38, uh, where we camp on the cliff long before the condos were built, or K55, or um, Popolas, you know, 3Ms before, you know, a fish factory was built and ruined the surf spot, although I hear the 3Ms has come back. And then below Ensenada, we would take surf trips down to... Uh, Cuatros Casas and, you know, Punta Cabanet and just a lot of the waves down there we explored. Cindy and I would uh, hop in a beat-up old 1963 Chevy Nova and we took that because we figured if it broke down that there would always be parts down there for it and we were right. <laughs> but when we started Billabong is when I really started to be able to travel um, internationally and uh, we recognized, as I said earlier, that we would have to start production going on in the United States. And so I would fly down to um, Australia and then the, their production manager, Greg Woods, I'd spend a week, two weeks, three weeks with him in their factory and then, you know, learn about, you know, uh, what's it like to sit behind a sewing machine or, you know, the uh, cutting you know, fabric and spreading or, you know, printing, you know, at that time it was the hand screen fluorescent board short. And so I would be traveling to Australia uh, in the early days quite frequently. And we would stay at Burley Towers, which was right on the point at Burley. And I can remember the first trip I took to Australia, I called Cindy and I said, Cindy, I've been gone three weeks. I mean, this is pre-internet, pre-Skype, you know, pre I'm really making myself old school dinosaur. And so it was the first time I called her in like two, three weeks. Like, I can't wait to see you. I can't wait to get home. I mean, my son at that time was four years old and my daughter was just born. Can't wait to see Joel and Katie. But man, I, I, I am going to be honest. It's really sad for me to leave Australia too because it's the most insanely cool country in terms of the people, in terms of the surf and the weather. Um, I really fell in love with, um, Australia. Um, amazing, amazing country. So I was blessed to be able to travel to Australia a lot. At that time, Mark Akalupo, who I had mentioned earlier, Aki, was sponsored by Rusty Surfboards. And so uh, Rusty would know that I was heading down to Australia, and he'd give me a call. Hey, Joe, I've got four boards I shaped for Aki. You know, can you bring them over to Australia? Yeah, sure, no problem. So uh, traveling with surfboards, that, you know, with a coffin, that was my first uh, exposure to what a nightmare it is from an international standpoint to travel with a, a surfboard coffin, you know, lugging all the boards around and then getting them through customs and then fighting with the agents behind the counter, you know, excess baggage fees. And then, you know, if you're traveling to other countries like uh, third world countries, going to Indo and going through Kuta Beach, if we were surfing um, 
Uluwatu are going to a license meeting, which Gordon would have at, at GLAN, paying off the customs agent so you could get your boards through. Jeez. Oh, all the way through from 1984, um, well, probably till present day, no question. Um, a lot of our trips, if not most of our trips, are traveling with a, with a surfboard coffin. And it really wasn't until I retired that um, I was taking any trips where I wasn't bringing surfboards. I mean, all of my trips were with, you know, three, four, five boards in a, in a board bag. That's it. That sounds like a heck of a time. You mentioned Uluwatu that is, in Bali. That is such an amazing place. Uh, yeah, that's, that's such an amazing place. I'm just, go, my, my head's going through all the different places that, that you're talking about. <laughs> when, when we first started talking, uh, Joe, well, we, I guess we spoke once before when I interviewed you for under30ceo.com. And uh, now, following up a, f- a few years later, you immediately started telling me about a trip that you went down to the Baja and uh, <laughs> just kind of living in the desert. And I guess that's what started us talking about the good old days when, well, you mentioned it. There were, you know, there were not the condos. But can you take can you take me back to to that uh, to that trip and and maybe what you learned from just the simplicity of you said you were driving a Chevy Nova is that right yeah yeah it was my wife's car <laughs> actually my girlfriend's car at that time before we got married um, yeah you just hear rumors through the grapevine in fact I uh, right when I graduated from Westchester High and I moved down to Orange County I was living in Corona Del Mar and it was um, an Easter break weekend, and a friend stopped by and goes, hey, I'm heading down to to Mexico. Um, do you want to go on a surf trip? And I'm going, Mexico, you know, you hear all these stories about how, you know, radical it is with the federales, but, you know, how great the waves are. And he goes, yeah, but my car, he had a 59 Morris Minor. He goes, my car is, like, probably not going to make it. I need you to follow me in your car to make sure if I break down. And I go, oh, sure, I'm up for it. The guy's name was Steve Barrett, and he had some guy named Ryan Sluter that was going with him. And so Cindy came along, and I knew that that both of them were like, they, they smoked a lot of weed. And I'm going, you know what? If you're down in, in Mexico and the federales bust you with weed, you know, it's like it, 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 it's, it's not going to end being pretty. So sure enough, you know, we're camping at 3 a.m. And you know, they pull out their weed and they're taking big bong hits. And I'm looking at Cindy and Cindy's looking at me. And I said, you know what? If their car breaks down here, they knew at the outset that they weren't supposed to bring weed. So, like, we separated ourselves, you know, from them. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, even on the way down to 3M's, you know, fireworks are legal. So, of course, you stop off and you get, you know, your case of beer and you get your fireworks and, you know, you're taking your cigarette lighter and you're throwing cherry bombs out the window. <laughs> it, yeah, it, was, it, it, was, it was a really fun and wild time. But I suggest to you that the times down in Baja today are still just as fun and they can be just as wild for better or for worse. It can be just as dangerous or, or crazy. But, you know, a friend of mine has a condominium right on the uh, cliff at K39 that um, he often loans to us and says, gee, you can 
can stay here and I'm just flashing with Cindy going, these are the very cliffs that we used to just camp on in the dirt and have our campfire and our Coleman stove and Coleman lantern and now we're staying in this, you know, a million dollar, you know, condominium right on the cliff, but because of the cliff sort of is protected from, you know, the toll highway there of uh, prying eyes of what the surf is doing, it's way, 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 way less crowded now at K38 and K39 than it was in the 70s. So when I'm saying the good old days are now, you just have to ferret out, you know, the, um, you know, the opportunities and, and they're there. But yeah, it was, it was, it was going to who songs and you know, drinking way too many margaritas when you're 18 or 19 years old because they don't care if they're serving you underage and then waking up in the parking lot at the Hotel California, you know, below um, 3M's. How did I get here? <laughs> <laughs> It, it sounds like the trips that I'm from New York State, and it sounds like the trips we'd make up to Montreal where the drinking age was 18. <laughs> yeah, stupid. But, man, I there was a wave there at 3M's on the north end of the point called Little Velsyland. And, uh, yeah, I used, I'm a goofy foot, but um, I love, love, love my backhand. Wayne Lynch was one of my heroes. And so I can, you know, remember watching old surf movies with Wayne Lynch at Anne Gary, you know, Morning of the Earth or Waves of Change. And so I loved, I sought out all the right points there. And Little Velzy Land um, was one of my favorite ways. A friend of mine, Carrot Man, Cindy and I were camping at 3M's. And I can remember being woken up almost every trip at like one or two in the morning by the federales you know, searching our campsite, trying to find weed and then looking for the bribe. And of course, they'd have, you know, the weed in a, you know, a plastic bag up their sleeve and they'd be looking under your <laughs> your car seat and they'd shake their hand and out would fall the weed, you know, and oh, this is yours, senor. Oh, no, it's not. <laughs> you know, and you learn to hide the money all over the car, you know, so you travel with, you know, 20 dollar bills and five dollar bills and you hide them so that you know when the federalities would be trying to extort you for a bribe all i've got is five dollars on me right <laughs> the very next night it'd be the same guy coming by you took all of our money and you, <laughs> we didn't have weed then but whatever you found you took you know so anyway but yeah Okay. <laughs> Sounds like the good old days indeed, but uh, but like you said, if you're you know, if you learn to enjoy all the nuances about the present moment, well then that's uh, that these are the good old days depending on uh, on what you, on what you're into. Well, it's also really dependent a lot upon, you know, how clued you are in terms of what's going on in different stretches of coast. Like I mentioned, K38 and K39, and I'm probably going to get heat for this, but it's way less crowded now than it was then. You know, it's a bit more difficult to get in where you have to park your car if you don't have a condo on the cliff. It's subject to break-ins, but you, know, you can still get some really uncrowded days. You know, Popola is a left point that reminds me a lot of Jocko's over in Hawaii, and it's just right above where the studio is where they filmed Titanic. I mean, I've surfed that wave with just a handful of people out recently. So it, it, it's out there. 
you know, you can definitely still get waves. It's not all like super developed, like what happened at Pavones down in Costa Rica, where, you know, when we started going down there, it was, you know, complete dirt roads, no electricity, no running water, no telephone. You know, you take the ferry across to get down there, and now it's paved roads and, you know, a, a lot of um, surf resorts. You know, right. It's, it's, it's all good. I mean, you just have to ferret it out, and you just have to kind of keep your finger to the pulse. And, you know, now you've got – you know, Surfline, you know, I can remember when Sean Collins just first brought Surfline on and we were all ticked off because so much of what, you know, he was revealing to the world was sort of like, you know, secret <laughs> where you have the logs of the uh, of the mariners that, you know, they wouldn't share, you know, where the reef passes were. And, um, and that's the same way it was for us surfers um, to keep these spots secret. But nowadays with Google Maps, absolutely nothing secret anymore um but there still are many 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 waves that you can get that are uncrowded yeah i know i i completely agree um joe you said something in a past interview about thinking globally and acting locally and uh, i wanted to get your perspective on that as someone who is who has uh built global brands but you still have a love for you know right where you're from in california and these the uh, you have a special place in your heart for little towns like pavones costa rica which is geez that's like five hours from san jose i mean it's it's in the middle of nowhere basically at the panama border uh, but could you talk a little bit more about this concept of think globally and and act locally because maybe it's become uh, maybe a little cliche or you see the stickers, but I don't know if people really give it too much thought. Could you, could you expand upon that a little bit more? Sure. Again, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to be naive. I don't want to be like an ostrich that sticks his head in the sand and is oblivious to, you know, all of the things in the world that are extremely challenging at best and extremely depressing at worst. Um, However, if you go down that rabbit hole and become negative and bitter, to me it seems like you've got like <laughs> Satan on the sideline gleefully rubbing his hands going, I just took Joe out of the battle. <laughs> you know, he's, he, he's, he's, he's in a really dark place. And I, I think we're called to be positive and to be light unto darkness. And so um, this think globally, act locally you know, it, it, it goes down to something as stupid as if you are going down to your local surf spot, which here in Palos Verdes, where I live, um, and uh, you go down these little goat trails and you have a backpack and um, you keep a trash bag in your backpack and you go down to the beach and you pick up trash every single surf session, you know, whether it's cigarette butts or whether it's, uh, you know, empty beer cans or we get a lot of fishermen up here. And it seems like fishermen from third world countries often don't have a sense of, you know, oh, picking up trash. And so, you know, I'm picking up a lot of like really stinky um, old um, plastic uh, bags that <laughs> are filled with dead sardines <laughs> or fishing lures. Um, mm. it, as dumb as that sounds, you know, and, and I'm really only one person, but 
there isn't a surf session that I, you know, if, I, if I'm in Waikiki, you know, I, I, I make a point to pick up trash. And that doesn't make me a saint or anything. It's just my stupid little futile effort to say, okay, I can as one person, you know, make a difference, you know, here. You know, if it's a matter of uh, paying respect. So, you know, uh, think globally, act locally. Um, I, I don't paddle out to a surf break and expect to get the set waves or expect, you know, I'll sit on the inside and I'll get the leftovers. And, and you know, it, it sometimes, um, you know, that gets away from me. I can remember one surf session I had in Japan at a wave in Hayama, which typically is a pretty protected uh, coastline um, in the Shonan area, but in a typhoon, uh, on a typhoon swell, there's a great left, and I can remember paddling out there, and um, the guys that were out there weren't very good surfers, and a friend of mine loaned me a, a board that was sort of a fun board, and so you know I started edging my way over deeper and deeper and being somewhat... Um, envious of all these waves that were being taken off on by these Japanese locals and they were barely making it to their feet or they were falling so then I started back paddling and then I started to you know get into somewhat of a feeding frenzy for getting my own advice about paying respect and yeah I got kicked out of the water and I deserved to get kicked out of the water because I wasn't showing respect and some Japanese guy paddled over to me and said you know um, this is a family spot and uh you know, you're out. And I can remember, you know, sitting on the beach waiting for him to come in and apologizing to him and saying, you know, you're right. I'm wrong. I blew it. You know, guy, go, okay, you can paddle back out, you know. And um, so when it comes to think globally, act locally, I think a lot of it has to, you know, uh, you can drill down into and unpack the whole concept of, you know, respect on all levels and you know living up here in Palos Verdes to open up somewhat of a can of worms but um, you know we don't have the greatest reputation for welcoming outsiders and but but it, it, it's true but it's also kind of not true because you know if people do show respect like um, if I see guys that I don't recognize and you know they're picking up trash at the base of the cliff or they're being respectful out in the water. Um, of course, you know, if a wave comes through and it's their turn and I'm going, hey, you know, go, 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 you know, because then I recognize, hey, this person, you know, has understands the concept of respect. Um, there are times to act globally. You know, Surfrider Foundation is a superb example of that. And yet they also have the beach cleanup days where they act locally um you know heal the bay is is another you know example of this um no matter even in japan if i am in osaka there's a great friend of mine that owns a surf shop called off the wall kama maguchi and kama organizes beach cleanup days uh, routinely in japan where you know they got big trash bags and they're going to isei beach or isonora and you know they're filling up literally you know trash bag after trash bag and you know a lot of that trash and we were doing this on an island that was between okinawa 
and uh, Kyushu called Tanigashima. Tanigashima is where they shoot off the rockets. It's sort of the Cape Canaveral of Japan, and there's amazing surf there. And so Kama it was kind of a windy closeout day, and he goes, "Come on, let's go pick up trash." So we're and, and we're picking up trash, and uh, it's coming from. Korea, it's coming from the Philippines, it's coming because of, you know, the markings or the labeling on all of the flotsam and jetsam that's on the beach, and so here it is, you know, it's global, but you can act locally, and it's just small, tiny, little acts, and, you know, it, it, it to me is a way to fight back the negativism, the buy into, you know, it's all dark, it's all bitter. And yeah, I'm 63 years old now. And, you know, I could easily live in the good old days or I could easily become all bitter. But to me, it's, it's not about that. It's about being positive. It's about acting, you know, locally. And so I'll get off my bandwagon here. But uh, you asked a, a, a question that's near and dear to my heart. No, I'm, I'm glad to hear your answer, Joe, and uh, I, I really appreciate that sentiment. And It's amazing to hear s someone who has done as well as you have to be still so grounded to understand that, yeah, we all need to pick up a little bit of garbage every day if we want to make the world a better place. It's, uh, it, it's humbling. It's, it's awesome. And, and Joe, I want to just ask you, it seems like you're, you're a guy who just really enjoys uh, life and smiles and, and laughs a lot and you just have a, a great way about you. Um, you seem really laid back. Uh, first, maybe I ask, is that, is that true? And then, and then second, I want to, want to ask, yeah, what, what's your secret? <laughs> oh boy, that's a loaded question. <laughs> there we go. That's what, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> um, uh, I'm going to digress just a little bit here. So I mentioned earlier that every single surf trip that I took from 1983 internationally through the time that I retired, I traveled with a board bag. And my poor wife, I mean, lugging all these boards all the way through all these customs and trying to get transportation and taxis. So when I retired... Uh, Bob Hurley graciously, he knew that one of my favorite waves on the planet, if not my favorite wave, is a wave called Hapiti, which is in uh, Tahiti on Morea. It's this left path, and it's just a wonderful wave. So Bob goes, Joe, you know, as a retirement present, you know, here's a trip to Tahiti. So I routed the trip through Paris because – you know, poor Cindy has been on all these surf trips. And again, I'm not like going, it's not so bad sitting, you know, on a beach in an extremely beautiful <laughs> location in Tahiti, right. but given up so much. So let's go to Paris and take, you know, a week or two in Paris and then we'll head over to Tahiti. And we never made it to Tahiti. Um, I actually have never even told Bob Hurley this story. Um, we just stayed in Paris because I, I was, we got some tiny little hotel um, by the um, uh, Arc de Triomphe, right by the Louvre, and we spent four or five days just going to the Louvre and just falling in love with all the paintings that I saw 
you know, in, in the magazines or in the art books like, you know, Goya and, and St. Jerome. And I can literally remember standing in as corny as the sounds in front of, you know, the painting of St. Jerome with Goya and, and like tears are coming down my face. And I think, how could I as a surfer be so blinded to the bigger world? Now, I'm not suggesting that, you know, it was it's just that surfers, myself very much included, have the blinders on and on all these thousands, little well, thousands, that's an exaggeration, but not in a daily sense, but literally down the hall from uh, this beautiful painting was um, uh, uh, Mona Lisa and literally, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of people are standing in front of the Mona Lisa and taking their picture in front of it as much as they're not supposed to, you know, and then we're wandering down, you know, seeing, you know, the Monets and the van goes and I said, well, Cindy, let's take, you know, the train and go down the Givenet to, you know, Monet's garden, you know, let's go to Versailles. Never made it. Then we got a higher car. And so I just uh, went through Provence with Cindy, you know, Axon Provence. And then um, it, it was the first non-surf trip I made. And um yeah, we never did make it to Tahiti. I, I think one of the secrets that I've had is that, you know, I, I guess I've had the ability to uh, have somewhat of a spiritual uh, sense or an awareness, um, really sensitive to that. And it's, you know, even on the surf trips, you know, if the surf was bad. Uh, one trip to Wakayama, we went to a Japanese temple at the foot of a falls that were closed. And we actually, all those dumb surfers hopped some chain link fence and it was right at dark with a full moon. And I was the last person coming up um, these ancient stairs uh, cut of stone. And all the Japanese surfers were waiting for me to come up and in the, I could hear, I could hear these Japanese gettas clattering down the stairs, uh, these stone steps. And um, I, I think there were, you know, ghosts that I saw. Um, in um, uh, kimonos um, when I came up to the top I go did you see those Japanese women what were they doing what are you talking about uh, so you, the, you know the, the spiritual side to me and I've mentioned it you know uh, a number of times in this conversation, you know, by the grace of God, or, you know, I've mentioned some, you know, biblical things like, you know, no man is fit for the plow if he looks back. So, you know, I, I have to give credit where credit is due here. You know, I just have a, um, I, I guess I'm just an old hippy dippy Jesus freak that <laughs> that's, still in, that's still in love with Jesus and has his eyes wide open and am incredibly thankful. I mean, you know, even on the crappiest day surfing, you know, I think I still have the biggest smile on my face. Um, we were in Hawaii this summer, and the waves were terrible with the surfboard shaper that I was staying with, John Carper, who lives right in back of uh, Lonnie's. And I asked John, hey, John, uh, let me borrow your longboard. And John goes, well, I can't. Like, it's all beat up. You know, it's at the shop. I have to let it dry out. But take my Costco wave storm out. I can take a wave storm out. Are you crazy? They're so much fun, Joe. I said, okay, I'll go out. And, and like, I had the 
I had so much fun on. So I came back here, and so like the waves here in Palos Verdes are really small in winter. So I've just been ta- uh, in summer. So I've been taking a, a Costco wave storm out at the cove in like little knee high waves and just laughing and laughing and giggling. So you know, I, 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 it's super easy. You asked what a secret was, and yeah, I do go to a Bible study on Wednesday morning. And there's a you know, group of men that, you know, they really do buy into the good old days or they really can be really negative. And I'm going, you know, I, I my hope isn't in humans. My hope, I mean, I'm, I'm really thankful for um, uh, the life that I've lived, for the blessings that I've enjoyed, for the timing that, you know, we've had with Billabong and with Hurley. Um, there is a story at the end of the book of Acts where it talks about um, uh, King Herod and all the people are praising him uh, and going, it's a voice of a God and not a man. And I've always had the end, of, the end of that story is, yeah, but then King Herod didn't give glory to God. So he was eaten by a worm and died. And so I'm just really conscious to give credit where credit is due and to not buy into the negativity and not place my hope in humans. Yeah, it's really easy to be super down on the whole Donald Trump presidency, not to political politicize the discussion, but here we go. I guess I am. And, um, yeah, I don't want to be taken out of the battle. I'm not going to be Pollyanna. I'm not going to be overly optimistic or overly, um, you know, positive. I'm a realist. But I want to think globally, act locally, and I mean that in, in a very real spiritual personal sense. That That's really interesting. Uh, Joe, and when you're out in the water and you're away from the television where you get to see good old Mr. Trump and when you're away <laughs> from the phone ringing and all of that stuff, how does – could you tell me how surfing helps you connect with your spiritual side? Yeah, it puts you in your place. It kicks your ass. Right. <laughs> it makes you like really aware of where your place is in the overall scheme of the universe, where you think it's all about you and it's all about me, and it's not. Um, I was just before we got on this uh, uh, Skype cast, this podcast, I'm emailing a friend of mine who actually did all the printing for Billabong in Australia that I'm still really good friends with. Carl Birch um, decided to go walk about, only uh, in this case it's sail about. Um, this guy's definitely not a sailor. He's a landlubber, but his friend's a sailor. And now it's 100 days that he's been out in the ocean and so um, he was in port, and I was exchanging a few emails with him, and I was bringing up that story in uh, Moby Dick where Herman Melville wrote about St. Elmo's fire and just the spiritual side of, like, when you're in nature, that's that unfiltered and that powerful. And what we experience um, as um, surfers is, is so amazing. And I never, ever want to take that for granted, and I want to be thankful, but it really does put us in our place. And yet I do have to counterbalance this with, again, it's the old hippy-dippy Jesus freak coming out on uh, coming out in me, but where it says in the Bible that every hair on our head is counted and that our God's a personal God, 
and that his thoughts towards me are more than the grains of sand on the beach. And, you know, as a surfer, I can super relate to that. So here's this weird conundrum, this oxymoron that I'm, I'm a puny nothing in the middle of the ocean. And yet um, I have this personal relationship with with you know, with Jesus. And so for me, you know, again, sorry, it's the, um, it's the Jesus free coming out in me. That's what surfing really, um, uh, you know, when I'm out in the water, uh, I experience it in, in a very real way firsthand. Sure. And, and no need to apologize, Joe. And, and if people out there are listening, you know, and, and maybe they don't relate to Jesus, maybe they relate to another belief system or they've made up their own or they don't know how to explain it yet when they're out in the water or when they're in nature and they feel so tiny yet all of a sudden connected. Uh, I mean, I know when I sit there, out in the waves and you know i'm not a great surfer and so even if i don't catch too many waves that day just the sitting out there in the sun in the salt uh in the in the sand and the meditative effect of watching wave after wave and having the the sound of the ocean and you're literally waiting for the earth to move for you to be able to to ride it i mean talk about a relationship with the planet relationship with the universe you know not to not to go off the deep end here but this planet is spinning and uh, it's, it has a moon around it that controls the tides, which we now go online to check every day to, to see if we can get out there. But I mean, that is a relationship with, with the universe, if I've ever heard one. Yeah, absolutely. Matt, I couldn't agree 100%. It puts things in extreme perspective. It sort of is a little glimpse of what I saw after 9-11, the very next day when Scott Olivet picked up the phone and said, come on, let's do this deal. And I'm going, are you crazy? Do you know just what happened, what went down? And being out in the ocean gives me that same sense, but only on steroids, you know, in the extreme. Joe, don't you, I mean, you're so wrapped up in this tiny little thing. Don't you realize What's going down? Don't you have a glimpse of the bigger picture? And so being out in the ocean, most assuredly, you know, uh, gives us great pause. And, you know, I'm sure that if you talk to people that are avid mountain climbers, you know, they'll tell you the same thing. You know, we just had that, what, that big slice of rock fall off of um, El Capitan you know, and, 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 and I'm, I'm envious of somebody, say, like Yvonne Chouinard with Patagonia, because not only does he get this experience when he's out surfing, and Yvonne Chouinard's the real deal. I mean, he's a hardcore surfer, as hardcore as they come, but then he's also a mountain climber. You know, he's also an avid fly fisherman, so he gets the same. I think any time you rub shoulders with creation, you know, God's creation, it, it really is humbling and it puts you in your place. That's awesome. I love that expression, rubbing shoulders with creation. I've I've never heard that before, or or never heard it put like like you've just put it, uh, Joe. Wow. After after all that, uh, would you like to leave the young people listening with 
something to reflect on with something to to bring into their own lives uh, maybe a little piece of advice for anybody listening out there who wants to go and live as fulfilling as a life that you seem to have been lucky enough to lead I, I guess the main piece of advice would be the same piece of advice that you know King Solomon gave way 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 back um, <laughs> <laughs> when he was asked what wisdom is and you know a lot of people take it completely wrong when King Solomon answered you know fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and I think they look at that in a very paternalistic in a very power driven way my uh, my interpretation of what King Solomon had to say was um, this awe experiencing uh, when you're on on a moonless night, you know, looking up at the Milky Way with the you know billions of stars spread above you, or if you're in the channel in Tahiti watching you know these huge waves come thundering through a reef pass, you know, sucking out all the water in front of it, so the waves literally dropping five ten feet below sea level because all the water is being sucked up the face and then when the wave is breaking, you know, it just is exploding, throwing up these plumes of white water, you know, 20, 30, 40 feet high. Or when you're on the North Shore in, you know, Hawaii on Oahu and there's a huge swell and the panes of glass are literally, you know, shaking and rattling in the home that you're staying in. You know, uh, to, to me, the, that gives great hope to put your focus, you know, looking up rather than looking down at your feet and, and buying into the negativity. You know, I, I think it's so important, Matt, that we are light unto darkness, you know, that we're salt unto the earth. And I said it earlier, and I'll say it again, when we're negative and we're bitter, I think Satan's on the sidelines just rubbing his hands gleefully going, yeah, I took Joe out of the battle. Like, like, what kind of hope is that? I mean, there is amazing hope in this world. And, you know, we can't be focused on the Donald Trumps of this world. We can't be focused on the negativity. Um, uh, we have to be hopeful. If we aren't hopeful, then it's game over. Joe, I think that's amazing advice. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. You're more than welcome. It's been an honor and it's been humbling. And I've had a lot of fun. Thank you, Matt. Yo, Live Different Podcast listeners, you know what to do. You love the episode if you listened this far. Go to iTunes. Show us some love. Please, that's all we ask, a little five-star review. Just a little review. That's all we need. Send it to a friend who needs to get their ass in gear. We're trying to do good work here, and we need your help. Hey, you know what? Special offer. Send me an email personally. I will write back. Matt at under30experiences.com. I want to know your feedback, and then I want to meet you in person. Maybe our yoga retreat, maybe our fitness retreat, who knows? Check out under30experiences.com. Go do something awesome with your life.